0: Welcome to the Mocking Cast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments I'll be joined by my co hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. So did you guys survive October? How was especially that last day of October? Um, Tell me about it. Sarah, I saw incredible pictures, but
1: why why don't you
0: enlighten us on what the Condon family uh, treated the world to?
1: So we have a deep love of Bob's Burgers, uh, especially because it portrays a family that in their situation is a restaurant in our situation, perhaps it is church, an <laughs> institution that the whole family's all in on. They have really good days. They have some really hard days. So we watch Bob's Burgers with our kids like pretty regularly. I do want to say uh, before season three is not kid friendly. It's one of these weird shows that shifted. So before you just turn on with your kids, just know that. Mm. Um, But we were the Bob's Burgers family for our trunk or treat at the church, which is like such an interesting event because so many people come to it or aren't a part of the church. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of children. So we did like, if you're familiar with the show, we did like a burger of the day because there's always a burger of the day and ours was something to do with fruits of the spirit. Um, (laughs) It was really sweet. It was like fruits of the spirit gummy burgers. I mean, my 11 year old came up with it. Like the kids were... Well, fruit he was, burger. I on. know <laughs> he was really excited. Our eight year old was like more reluctantly Louise, which if you know, the show is like the best way to be Louise. So, mm-hmm. um, she was a vampire teenager slash. She would wear the Louise hat to appease us. So, which is like very on brand. Anyway, it was a really sweet Halloween. It was like, I feel like we're in this just beautiful, like middle of childhood where, you know, they, they're they pretty self-sufficient. Not they still want to be yet. around us. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's really fun.
0: What about RJ? You you guys have had a history or a tradition oh, of yeah. pretty amazing costumes. Family costumes. We like to do family
2: concept. We do. This year, Marshall wanted to be a great white shark. So he was a great white shark. And we were trying to live into that. And so we were just, we were Jaws. I was uh, I was Quint, the uh, the grizzled Massachusetts fisherman, and my wife was Jaws's uh, first victim, and so Amazing. Uh, that was our that was kind of our 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 concept, and it was we had a great Halloween. I mean, how how can you not have a great Halloween when you have a a six year old? You know, yeah. he's been talking about it for a month. Yeah, um, he ate so much candy, he got a stomach ache, which is yeah. exactly what's supposed to happen. Yeah, and then you uh, you get on with your life. Yeah, so. That's DZ, what about beautiful. you? What did you do?
1: Yeah. What did you do? Did you well, do? we were
0: sort of, uh, we were in Texas for the, for the, the never-ending, oh, low anthropology tour. <laughs> oh, so, so you guys are
1: bad parents. That's what you no. did for Halloween. Okay. We
0: were, cool. honestly, there was like a mutiny afoot in our house. They were so upset. I said, I would not miss Halloween. Of course, I would never miss Halloween. And so we were, we were there in Halloween. We just got mm. there sort of at one in the morning on Halloween. Um, oh, no, I mean okay. No, the, uh, on the 31st. So, so we oh. were there all day. Okay. And um, it was raining here, and you'd think that that was going to put a damper on things. It did not. It good. was, uh, this is the first year, though, our 12 year old was like, I got to, I'm going to another neighborhood with some friends, and mm-hmm. you guys yes. just do your own thing. You do
2: your thing. I'll do my thing. So it's I was all like, good. It felt
0: a little bit like the beginning of something. Yeah. Um, but mainly, we have a. The, our our neighborhood like really shines on Halloween. I gotta say, though, you know, I was driving through Texas quite a bit, and y- trunk or treat is not really a thing here. It is, but oh. in Texas, it looks like I couldn't go. Uh, there's a maybe I've seen it a few places. Tr- it felt like in Texas I couldn't drive two minutes without seeing some sort of trunk or treat you know, uh, advertisement. So th- yeah. that's interesting. Gotta to sanctify still,
2: those pagan holidays. You know, there is still
0: some, <laughs> uh, some, uh, some tra- regionalism, which is kind of refreshing to, to see. Yeah. Well, happy Halloween, you too. Happy all saints. Day, I know it's All Saints Sunday, this coming Sunday, right? I learned mm-hmm. something in the world of church nerdiness. I was with uh, our friend, uh, in the, hot po- the co-host of the Same Old Song podcast. I was with Aaron Zimmerman at his wonderful church in Waco. And he mentioned the, there's a list that Episcopal churches read on All Saints Days of everyone who died in the parish in the last year. And I didn't know the this. The necrology. But it's called the necrology.
1: You didn't know that? Uh,
0: nope. And I told Paul Walker our record here who's you know been a man of the cloth for 30 years and he said what no uh, i guess oh we should call it that. <laughs> so the necrology the I
1: necrology mean- it's not about sex
0: <laughs> <laughs> or,
2: or if it is see your therapist yeah. <laughs> um well anything else to report you to i w- i want to report something Um, Because All Saints Day November 1st is also my middle son's birthday, Spencer, who turned 18 this year. So I now have a 20-year-old, an 18-year-old, and a 6-year-old, which is just insane. Bold choice. But speaking of reaching stages of life, he and I can say this because he'll never listen to this podcast— we were driving in the car the other day. It was late at night. Um, I, I took him to the Steelers-Miami Dolphins football game as part of his birthday present. Ooh. And it was about bad. midnight. And he said, uh, "He said, you know, Dad, I know that you and Mom think that I resent you for moving me to Florida. You know, because just in case you're not a longtime listener, we moved him between his freshman and sophomore year of high school. He was very happy in Houston. Then the pandemic hit. And by the time we got out of the pandemic, he was like done with Florida and just ready to get back to Texas. He's applying to pretty much all the Texas schools. Um, he said, I know you think uh, that I resent you for moving me, but I don't. And it was really, really hard. But moving just showed me the relationships that are most important in my life, the things that are most important in my life. And it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do, but I actually think it was a, a really good thing. And so I don't, I don't resent you. And then, I don't know, we had his parent teacher conferences yesterday and he tells us nothing. If you have mm-hmm. teenage boys, you can relate to this, that you they tell you absolutely nothing. Yeah. But his, the degree to which his teachers love him, the work he's doing the way that he has blossomed completely unbeknownst to my wife and me <laughs> um, it could have you know it could have gone a lot of ways uh, with us moving, but i 'm just so proud of him and so thankful to God that he kind of sustained us and him through that through that time period, and as he enters adulthood as an eighteen year old I just am kind of standing in awe of the man that he has become um especially after sort of not really knowing what was going on in his heart and mind the last couple of years. So I just want to say how thankful I am for that. And it's, it's a reminder again that I don't know, not, not, I hope we've been good parents, but the importance of just that this, this, I think this message of kind of sticking in there and patience and grace and unconditional love and letting your kids go through what they need to go through and not taking it personally. And (laughs) I don't know, there might be, there might be something, I hope there's something, to it. So that's my, 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 my wife and I have been crying a bit this past week over all of that. So Aww. Spencer, if you ever listened to this, I'm sorry, but that's, that's where <laughs> well, I'm that's at.
1: That's just so reassuring because middle school boys are the weirdest. Oh my and yes. I'm just like really tempers like this, this this morning it's a little scary I mean it's am so little, glad to hear because yeah. this morning I literally said I'm gonna move my car so your dad can take you because he likes to take his car I go outside I'm fully in a bathrobe, like I'm not clearly not taking you to school, and our son walks out as the car is moving. Oh yeah, and totally. hits the window, yeah. and I'm like, "What are you doing?" So um, he's on a <laughs> plane right now, to Florida, insanity. because RJ and Jamie are going to raise him because <laughs> um, I can't be his mom after that. So yeah.
0: Oh my gosh, I just I concur. Our, we, Sarah and I have the. Good fortune or something to have boys that are exact same age and yeah. oh. the uh, let's just say that um, it is it is it's a whole new kettle of fish. Uh, it's a
1: new day every day. Oh, It'll keep goodness. you on your
2: knees, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Well,
0: yeah. Um, speaking of my twelve-year-old, he is obsessed with baseball. Out of the blue, oh, and that's awesome. um, go it's Astros! A, it's a good time to be obsessed with baseball because this is being recorded as the World Series is on. And so I'm going to read an article, but Sarah, don't glaze over. because It's not really about baseball, but here okay. we go.
2: Are you aware there's a Houston team in the World Series? So? Yeah. Are, you, are you aware of I'm that? My, you live the there. The
1: person I'm married to makes me deeply aware, okay? <laughs> okay.
0: What, what, this is by Derek Thompson in The Atlantic. It says, What moneyball for everything has done to American culture? He writes this, the Return of the World Series this weekend offers an opportunity to engage in America's real national pastime, which is wondering loudly why people don't like baseball as much as they used to. Possible reasons abound after the steroid steroid scandals of the 2000s, the stars of my childhood got ceremonially berated for cheating by grumpy old dudes and blacklisted from the Hall of Fame. Kind of a bummer to be honest, but on a deeper level, I think what happened is that baseball was colonized by math and got solved like an equation. The analytics revolution, which began with the movement known as Moneyball, led to a series of adjustments that were, let's say, catastrophically successful. Seeking strikeouts, managers increased the number of pitchers per game and pushed up the average velocity and spin rate per pitcher. Hitters responded by increasing the launch angles of their swings, raising the odds of a home run, but making strikeouts more likely as well. In other words, Smarties approached baseball like an equation, optimized for Y, solved for X, and proved in the process that a solved sport is a worst one. So there's like, in baseball, basically, in the last 10 years, there's a lot less hits and a lot more strikeouts. He goes on, though, to expand. this: is that the quantitative revolution in culture is a living creature that consumes data and spits out uh, homogeneity. Take film. While the abundance of video content is fantastically diverse today, blockbuster movies look a lot like a solved equation. Now, I didn't know this. In 2019, the 10 biggest films by domestic box office included two Marvel sequels, two animated film sequels, a reboot of a 90s blockbuster, and a Batman spinoff. In 2022, the 10 biggest films by domestic box office included two Marvel sequels, one animated film sequel, a reboot of a 90s blockbuster, and a Batman spin-off. Blockbusters are kind of boring now. Not because Hollywood is stupid, because but because it got so smart. So Derek says, Cultural moneyballism in this light sacrifices exuberance for the sake of formulaic symmetry. It sacrifices diversity for the sake of familiarity. Its genius dulls the rough edges of entertainment. But it is definitely worth asking the question. In a world that will only become more influenced by mathematical intelligence... Can we ruin culture through our attempts to perfect it? Wow. Is, he's He, by the way, he talks uh. at length, he says, this is not the world's not ending. This is not the... Sure. However, lots of people have noticed that if you want to get a movie off the ground, or if you want to get a, yes, a book off the ground, if you want to get an album off the ground, you have to appeal kind of directly to sort of intellectual property or, or books that currently exist. Well, it's like that, but for so-and-so, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it's, it's like daring greatly, but for old men, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 the, or would
1: read for the record. That would
0: re- <laughs> yeah. So um, this formulaicism that is, that is all statistically driven. Um, he says it's ruined baseball. I kind of agree. There was a lot more just, um, just random crazy stuff that would happen before the age of optimization. But this optimization, the way it plays out in all sorts of other arenas, is just, um, I, I see it, I, I feel it. RJ, you're you're looking quizzical.
1: Yeah, RJ. I'm just
2: trying to think Spill of that. Str- I just have always felt that baseball is kind of boring. Okay. You just you <laughs> stand. Right, ar- it's a lot of standing around. You know, like I played a little bit of baseball. My kids played a little bit of baseball, but unless you're the pitcher or the catcher or maybe the first baseman, you basically spend your all your time lying around. And the games just take too long. Mm-hmm. And the RJ reason the games take too long baseball <laughs> is because of uh, is because of commercials think you about know? the
0: wider point though here do you <laughs> see uh, yes. is there's okay. anything you okay. have to say I'm about the money ballism about the culture w-
2: i get <laughs> the optimization point i get it and i do agree with him that i have a I, there's much less pull to go see the latest block but like, i'm kind of sick of superhero movies yeah, i just am like they're well. awesome yeah like they actually they, the marvel cinematic universe has produced some amazing films And I'm really bored of it. Yeah. Like, isn't there something else? I mean, Maverick was incredible, but it was a reboot of a 90s franchise, (laughs) you know? There's also, I mean, Maverick was better than it had any right to be. Let's just say that. So there's there's room for creativity. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. I just, baseball's boring. I'm just going to say it. Mm. And there's too many commercials, which is why I advocate for European sports. Because if you watch a soccer game or-
1: Come on. Yeah, soccer, soccer's
2: not boring at all. I just No, didn't, no, but I, you know the best thing about soccer? G- it can kidding? be very boring. But you know be... the best thing about it? What? There's no commercials. Mm-hmm. Oh. There's, it's over an hour and a half. It's done. You watch a football game, it's four
1: hours long. It is. It's yeah.
2: insane. It is insane. It's insane. <laughs> all right. Sarah, as the... <laughs> resident sports
1: yes as, <laughs> you know lover as a sports editor uh, yes <laughs> Mockingbird, um i actually really love baseball because i understand it and i don't understand football um okay. it's impossible I, to understand i'm not gonna watch soccer um because okay. i'm from america <laughs> um so
2: <laughs> world cup is coming up but you didn't know that
1: i mean my best friend's family growing up were like big uh st louis cardinals fans and so while i didn't grow up with any baseball that was like you know I, was it is it mark McGuire or oh, somebody yes yeah, totally. yeah like I, re- I remember like sort of that being in my world and sammy, sammy sosa yeah and sammy sosa i remember those names so um I mean, I. The line of so, the shields. I just want to say, I was today years old when I realized that Ozzie money Smith. ball means like making more money from baseball. Yeah. So that just clicked in my brain. Mm. Um, so I don't know that I have a lot to add. Um, I mean, I. It's a movie. I, yeah. I mean, there's less. Sure. There's there. It's like how no one has Southern accents anymore a little bit. Right. Because the optimal way to talk is without a Southern accent. I mean, yes, Mm. this is like happening like, you know, in every way, shape and form. The flattening, Um, the flattening. Yeah. I mean, I'm interested to see like, what does the baseball history and story mean for us now that it is so optimized? I mean, we, you're right, Dave, like we've seen, I know enough to know we've seen two games, where it was zero, you know, something. And Josh and I watched that game a couple of weeks ago. That was just zero, zero until like the 18th inning or something.
2: Yeah. Um, that's commitment.
1: Yeah. Oh, we're all in. We will watch baseball. And I mean, if you get tired, it's very quiet and green and you can just take a nap on the couch. So <laughs> I'm, I love that, but I don't, I mean, it's, it's, it makes me think about where this is headed, but then it's like, okay, well where is this headed in a broader way? Like what does it mean that everything gets flat, you know?
0: Yeah, I was there's another article this week that said that that the genre of film that is proven to be most durable in the sort of new media streaming box office kind of you know a transition that's been so awkward for that's kind of a lot of people say it's just these huge blockbusters and an independent film and small like rom-coms you know they're just done kind of or to the extent that they exist like there's a new rom-com coming out starring guess who george clooney opposite julia roberts oh, it's like those yeah. are the same people who were starring in our rom-coms 25 years ago and like yeah. that's a little strange that we haven't gotten a new i guess like you know 500 days of summer was was a was a great sort of somewhat more modern i guess mean, that's 15 years old now the um I was like that's an old movie baby. yeah i know <laughs> um but it's horror horror movies tend yeah. to be less reliant on existing ip like yeah. uh, you you yes they're franchises but for the most part you can make a cheap horror movie and people will go see it and um it's just to to me that's That's really interesting that that has proven somewhat immune to this flattening. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also dealing with like people are love horror right now because they they're surrounded by situations that are somewhat horrific and want to think about how would I react? Mm -hmm. In such and such a thing.
2: Horror is also never going to have like mass, mass market appeal in the way that a ROM, because certain people just aren't going to go watch a slasher movie. Yeah. Right?
0: Well, they, they're, 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 it's the most profitable part of the movie business outside of the Marvel universe.
1: That's fascinating. And that so
0: that's to me is interesting. And you know, we've got some of our, Best writing on our website, by the way, is about horror, and we, oh. we have two horror experts, in Ian Olson and Blake Collier, and they just put up something called Six Spooky Novels to read this Halloween, which is
1: oh cool. It's
0: really really great. It's not the usual suspects. They always have like interesting takes on what you know, because horror to me is a I find it generally soaked in Christian imagery and religious yeah. imagery. There's a lot For of sure. good and evil. And, um, uh, the stakes are high, you know, it's, yeah. so I, I get that some people don't like it, but when it comes to baseball, I love baseball. I don't watch baseball because for the exact <laughs> reasons he talks about, but what I like about baseball is the sort of, I like, uh, when I was a kid, the Mets were the biggest thing in my life. Aww. I've got Mets figures on the, behind me that you guys can see actually, if you were right here, um, starting lineup. But I, I, I just watched a Nolan Ryan documentary and i just thought to myself there is a couple different things about it i think that the these characters these old ball players are all just like the most colorful guys and, and they're all like, you saw Dave Winfield talking to George Brett and they're just like cracking jokes. You watch stuff about old football players and they're all uh, brain damaged. You know, they can't, I know, they I can't talk.
1: Say, yeah. They don't, yeah. <laughs> that is they haven't true. been traumatized physically.
0: Uh, the old golfers are all sort of drunk and the, but it's like yeah. the, the baseball players have these stories that are just yeah. insane and they're woven into the fabric of America. Now I get, and I get the fact that that's going to be less and less the case. But we will have lived through an era, I think, where the history of baseball, that Ken Burns stuff, does tell something larger. And it was a story for us all to get wrapped up into. And a kind of a redemptive story. You know, if you're you're trying to weave a cultural narrative, like there are worse ways to do it than with baseball. But the flattening, I think, by the way, is a net loss. I thought that it was cool to be in Texas and see all these trunker treats and things. Say, like, hey, we don't have that in Virginia. Uh, yeah. Regional difference is interesting. Uh, yeah. I don't want to live in a monoculture, but well, all right. Uh, let's move on. Sports
1: segment done. Sports
0: segment done. <laughs> you can relax. Really? Six
1: months Should we not for we go on? One?
0: Sarah, you will have nothing to say about this next one. This was also in the Atlantic by Michael Waters. It's called "The Decline of Etiquette and the Rise of." Boundaries. Dun-dun-dun-dun. Boundaries. Uh, big story here. For centuries, strict social norms dictated what people could talk politely about, and consequently how much they knew one another, even those closest to them. Yet by the close of the 20th century, conversational taboos were falling away. Etiquette manuals had lost their cultural cachet. Sexuality was being more openly discussed, and books such as Prozac Nation that dealt frankly with mental illness were trailblazing a new, raw form of memoir. In 2022, the idea that we should carefully control what personal information we share and take in might seem outdated, even dystopian. Or maybe it doesn't. Today, a disconcerting question seems to be on many people's mind Do we know too much about, about those around us? Advice columnists are fielding questions about how to protect against overshares, as well as what constitutes TMI in the first place. TikTokers are accusing their peers of divulging life details to the point of, quote, trauma dumping. As society-wide norms have loosened, individuals have taken on the burden of navigating their own boundaries, and it isn't always easy. The result, it seems, is a new backlash against oversharing. More and more, people seem eager to reinstall some boundaries. Online, new privacy features such as Instagram's close friends restrict the reach of certain posts so that only a pre-selected group will see them. Users no longer have to risk their aunt learning about their shroom trip. Uh, Meanwhile, many workers are realizing that they don't want to bring, quote, their whole self to the office at all. We talked about that a few weeks ago. This desire for emotional distance is even trickling into intimate friendships. In 2019, a relationship coach tweeted that anyone should feel empowered to turn down friends who ask for support. She suggested the following response. I'm so glad you reached out. I'm actually at capacity. I don't think I can hold appropriate space for you. End of quote. It became a meme and people clearly thought it was funny. Um, But he, he closes, in an era of instant abundant communication... How do you step back when you're feeling overwhelmed? If it feels like there isn't a clear answer, that's because we've left behind the era of strict, clear etiquette. We're entering a new one in which the rules are bespoke and the arbiters are each and every one of us. Reminds me of this, uh, this uh, reductress article that said New Barbie showcases a doll whose whole thing is boundaries. <laughs>
1: oh my gosh. I thought that's it, was, so good. it was funny. You know, I think a, a lot about the way I was raised. I mean, I've talked about this before, but that we were like the blue dot and we were the blue, just our house was the blue dot in the red state. It felt like a lot politically and my parents were really active politically and somehow they managed to read the room and their friends managed to read the room and they were in deep and meaningful relationships with a lot of people that they didn't agree with politically. Mm hmm. And how we have just lost that, you know, and because we all it's like, we all have to like our only identity now is in our opinions. Mm-hmm. And so we have to share them all the time with everyone. And if people don't agree with them, then, you know, then they're off our friend list or whatever. I don't know. I just, I think there's a lot to the, I think there's gotta be an overlap actually to oversharing in division on some level. That's really interesting. Oh. Um, yeah. I mean, it makes me think of a thing a therapist told me one time, just because, you know, I, I had someone in my life who was like really sharing a lot about their marriage. And I said, I'm really uncomfortable and I don't know how to handle this. And, My therapist, it was such a great illustration, but she's like, there's a circle in a marriage and the husband and the wife or whoever, you know, are standing in the middle of it, whoever's married. And then there's a ring beyond that, let's say. And that's like, maybe that's their kids or that's their parents or whatever. And then there's one beyond that, you know, that kind of thing. And she basically said, this person has pulled you through all of those rings into the center to tell you information that like you shouldn't have to know. And it was such a helpful illustration. um, I think for what happens on the internet every day, like we just pull everyone (laughs) through those rings right into our marriage or right into our relationship with our children or, you know, I mean, it, it makes me because we don't have etiquette for the internet. Like one thing that I always find really disturbing is when people put up pictures of children and they'll say, you know, and typically they do this if it's like an embarrassing thing or a confessional thing, you know, whatever. Susie, you know, made a mess in the kitchen and we had a hard talk and I explained to her and now, you know, it's like the kind of thing. And then they'll write at the bottom of it, like posted with Susie's permission. And it's like, girl, Susie's six. <laughs> she does not know what it means to give you permission. To post this stuff. And so there's just, there's no etiquette. There's no etiquette in our interpersonal relationships, but there's definitely, there is like, you know, opposite of etiquette on the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm someone who really sort of hates the word etiquette. You know, I wasn't raised with people. It's so funny. My parents, you know, I didn't do cotillion. I didn't do any of that stuff that was very typical of girls in Mississippi. And and yet there was like an un- understood etiquette, I guess, that like I um that I miss. Hmm. Interesting. Well, RJ, what what what's uh? I don't feel like I
2: hardly know anything about anybody. Like this seems it seems contradictory to male. me. Like maybe that <laughs> yeah. maybe not on I, social I media I mean, that much. Right. Maybe well no maybe that's the thing that people are oversharing on social media. But again, social media isn't real. And, like, does anyone share anything with anyone in their actual lives? Like, where's the boundary between, like, etiquette and loneliness? Like, maybe the reason people are broadcasting everything on social media is because they're so darn lonely and they don't have anyone who knows them or anyone who listens to them or any close friends or any intimacy with anybody. So they have to go on social media and kind of vomit it out. But I'm I'm consistently surprised when I get to know people how little I know about them and then i find something out and uh, i'm like oh that's that's interesting um well i don't know if
0: people are over, i think there's like a very you know, a clear etiquette about what it is appropriate to share i do think that people are are well aware of like that's the, I, I, at least if you're trying to gain gain approval or uh likes you you share enough stuff to feel uh, like sure. you've shared without yeah. actually sharing anything that Painful. I mean, how many times are we actually surprised by like someone makes an announcement about a divorce on social media and like, well, I had no idea, you know, but they, they've been so open and vulnerable about so many things, quote unquote vulnerable, but you don't actually know what's really going on. So I think that, and I think the loneliness is correlated to that. It's, it's, I think Helena Diabala talked about, um, who wrote Craigslist Confessional, who's speaking for us in New York this year. She said that people are sharing a lot, but they're not, they're sharing the wrong sorts of things. Um, and I, I, I I'm, I'm reminded of two things I, I, I think again about what I talked about last episode where Stephen Paulson said that we're, we're, we're sort of always looking to confess we've got to, we've got a we're, we're burdened by life and by uh, our conscience and we're looking to confess and sort of the, the, we're going around trying to find someone to answer uh, us with a word of affirmation and a word of absolution and we, we, we don't really get that anywhere so we keep looking and it just is, that's what it often feels like to be alive today is just, um, <clears throat> a, a confession, uh, in, in need of an, of an absolution. Um, but I think an, I do notice the increase in talk about boundaries in a way that, um, I know that I'm prone to sort of needing to, I, I, I give and give and give, and then I sort of say, okay, that's enough. I need a boundary now and I need to stop. And self care is a lot about boundaries, that whole sort of movement, and um, I find Christians talking about boundaries all the time in a way that is a little dissonant because I just don't yes Jesus withdrew to pray sometimes but I don't think he had boundaries in terms of like what he was able to take on in terms of sin or shame or something like that and there's a little bit of like a um, we use religious language to justify um, wanting to not serve other people or just
1: totally and he never yet, said I'd, we sorry, all have our I don't limits. Have time
0: for you. He never said, I don't have time for you. Uh, he never said, you know, I don't have the space for you right now. It, if anything, he did withdraw, he did rest, but he also never turned people away. And that's a right. important thing. Um, so it's I'm, I'm conflicted about this, but I do talk about in the book, in Low Anthropology, I talk about uh, the courtesy being actually a fruit of Low Anthropology, because courtesy is based on the understanding that in some sense you and I need a little bit of guardrails in order to love one another well, <laughs> and that um, you need to be protected from me and I need to be protected from you in order to sort of actually approach loving you with any kind of efficacy. And so, um, courtesy is basically, I don't dump immediately everything, I, that, that, that frankness, complete gut-level truth-telling can be a way of inflicting myself on another person in a way that I can't handle when they do it to me. So courtesy is usually a bit of an allowance for the fact that we all have kind of rough edges. And in order to uh, love and get along and grease the wheels of society, I need a little bit of a buffer before, as before I can really enter into caring for you. If I, if I have, if I have to deal with the full reality of everyone all the time, that does create a situation of, of, you know, like I want to run screaming for the hills. So, so like, uh, and, and today, I think with the very idea that you would ho- withhold some part of your personality, it sounds like, oh, you don't censor me, you don't accept me. But you sort of want to say, well, actually, I want to have a better chance at loving you so that I don't get completely overwhelmed by your need uh, or you by mine. Um, so maybe that's, maybe that's just a rationalization, but I, I think there's something to it.
1: Yeah, I mean I think the the boundaries thing is like a really popular thing to talk about now and I think it probably is just us grasping at some sort of like cultural norm because we don't have them. Yeah. Um That's kind
0: of what's being said in the piece.
1: Yeah, yeah, but I I I don't know. I just feel like we're all like building the it's not even a plane we're like building like the cheap kid drone while we're flying it but we're actually on the drone. Do you know what I mean? Like I just feel like it's all
0: I don't know. I what's a little like going to a wedding where someone feels like they have to invent the their entire cosmology from the ground up uh because yeah. they have got and that's so that's a bit it sounds like freedom but it's actually a huge burden in a lot a of ways. It's a huge burden. Yeah. A little bit of etiquette might go a long way sometimes.
2: RJ I was going to say, I I do have friends that I feel like I can be fairly filterless with, you know, and and maybe, I don't know, you know, I'm not young, I'm not old, I'm kind of in between. Maybe I've learned to censor myself a little bit out of concern for others, but I do have a few friends that I feel like I can sort of let it all hang out with. And I just wonder how many people don't have a friend Like that, like don't have someone they can actually talk to, who's there for them, who will pick up the phone, who will listen to them, and this need to overshare on social media is like, hello, I'm here, I'm here, like recognize my existence, and and someone love me, please just someone recognize that I'm here, and that if more Mm -hmm. people had just someone, you know, a friend who was willing to. Who just loved them? Who loved them enough to be willing to put up with their stuff? And and sometimes also like, intimacy is built through sharing stuff. Sometimes you know when you have a friend who calls you and dumps on you. Sometimes it's a burden. Sometimes it's an honor. Sometimes it's like, wow, you love me enough to actually tell me what's going what's going on. And to me, that's the that's the sadness. Is uh, I don't maybe it's an etiquette thing, but I just I feel like it's a loneliness thing. I Feel like it's a desperation thing the oversharing
1: yeah maybe i don't know i feel like this conversation's really gendered okay really i do yeah i mean i love what you're saying rj and i hope everybody has that and i mean related not related i just read today a statistic that the number of men under the age of 30 who've never had sex has tripled recently so like But again, I feel like this is a little bit of a gendered conversation. Um, I feel like men lack a lot of intimacy. In their relationships, and I kind of sometimes feel like women have too much. So, <laughs> well, it's, it's I don't certainly know.
0: Reductress is always talk, talks about sort of, you know, satirical news feminized, and it's 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 a th- the the female friend who's always talking about boundaries is like a, a thing. It's an archetype right now.
1: Oh, totally. Uh, along,
0: among women, my my wife is always telling me, it's like, well, I just you know, so and so decided they need boundaries this week, and then next week they won't, and we'll see what." happens. <laughs> see what yeah. happens it's this yeah. or they feel like they're you know there's that amy schumer skit where like everyone is sort of trying to up each other in terms of self-deprecation well i'm just the worst person that's ever lived and like not only do my kids you know haven't eaten in a week like they're the worst you know one, yeah. one of them just cut off his right arm you know and yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a little race to the bottom there's a sense of which like boundaries um in in that situation, she she always feels like uh, boundaries is a way of sort of not allowing yourself to be completely run over in a in a in a way that I think some women have been told that's that's okay, you know and i I, mm-hmm. I don't think it is okay. but I also know that like I don't want boundaries from God. <laughs> don't want. Right. I don't want boundaries. I don't
1: It is hilarious and people are like, "And Jesus stepped away cuz he needed a nap and a firm boundary." And I'm like, "Is that what happened?" It's like when people you know? say,
0: "Well, geez, I was we were at this Tyler Conference this week and Tish Warren was asked about people using their prophetic voice and she said like she gets a little wary of people talking about Jesus turning over the tables." And she's like, yeah. "That happened." It it did happen, but One it, happened, yeah. once. <laughs> and, it and, happened once, and he got killed yeah. a week later. So yeah, like, and and she so said, "You do the math. Be very yeah. careful about using that as a justification for anything." Uh, yeah. He had some he had some skin in the game, shall we say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Sarah, so, I mean, yeah.
2: can you say more clearly what you're trying to say? Or are you scared of the hate mail you're going to receive, or do you, do you just feel like there's more of a tendency among I hate to say women to just Share and share and share and share in a way that in a way yes, that is is, absolutely. is is insensitive and I think that's, and, that's, and, uh, <laughs> I don't know burdensome to others.
1: I mean, I think that is in some ways like, oh, please don't send me an email. I kn- I Davis, think that is in Davis some ways biological. David's funny. on, you. biting his biting his nails nails on so your so back right now. <laughs> He's like, oh, what is God. she going to say? Do I forward <laughs> these emails or do I not? Um, say, say what um, you think. I, I feel. I mean, like, right? Like, okay. So, like, historically, we're we're in the village. We're at the, you know, we're we're at our little houses. We're cooking. We're cleaning. We're gossiping. Right? We're sharing. We're doing these things, and. I think that is like very much a part of like female community. Like it's like when we're in a, all in a public bathroom together and somebody needs help with their hair or a tampon, we all like, are like, Hey, we're here. Let us help you. Like that is something that's like very normal in female culture and really beautiful. Like I lo- like, as one of my favorite parts of being a lady, honestly. And also like that meets social media and this ravenous desire to get followers and to get people to pay attention to you and to probably, yes, RJ, yes. I mean, women are lonely too, to meet your loneliness. And this really beautiful thing that is sort of like communal comfort and sharing can become really, really I don't like to say toxic because I because I, people aren't poison but can become really yeah. dangerous.
2: I have noticed when Jamie I, I, I'm, I'm always shocked when Trauma when dumping. Jamie has a friend or when she's made a new friend like. That friend will, will like text her every day or someone's call every day. And I'm like, yes. what?
1: Like, what? Yes.
2: Like, there's yeah. nobody I talk yes. to every day. It's so. Yeah.
1: And I have like, I have a handful of friends crazy that like I do that with me. every day. And I love them so much. And we'll, then we'll also talk on the phone. <sighs> like we're always just. I love that, you know. So like when you say like I don't know your stuff about friendship like that feels very all right to fair me. enough so, well I, don't I, know. I a- well
0: it is true though it is the, I'm the, almost the, a male. close manner-
2: <laughs> <laughs> <Best laughs>
1: so, so
2: close, close.
0: <laughs> there's something <laughs> and again I don't really care if it's uh, inborn or socialized I think it's just it's the truth I, I have you know I spent. 15 years editing a website and i just it was the, the challenge broadly speaking was to with most of, the, not every time, but female writers, I would try to get them to take out 20% of the personal pronouns and men. I would male writers. I would try to get them to add in 20% more of like, Search. add some more of yourself into this. It's, it's just a, yeah. it's just a head game or cerebral. And sometimes with the ladies be like challenge you to, to try to just, you know, take one step back. So we don't feel like we're inside your diary. You know, it's like, it's a, yeah, it's, it's this, uh, and again, I don't know if it's socially, you know. I right. I want to don't want hate letters either, but I did notice like right. that's the that was the pattern, and it it changed. You know, I definitely know dudes who would vomit all over the page, and you'd be like, I can't publish this. And I knew ladies who would just be so uh, in the clouds that you'd want to you know sh- shout at them and like. We're down here, you know, it's, but it, uh, it was something.
1: But 80% of the time, it was pretty predictable as to what you, yeah. I mean, I think that's, yeah, you know, I think that's true. So, well, let's talk. Let's send your hate letters <laughs> to RJ. Send say. your hate letter to RJ. <laughs> He's
0: almost a man. Um, <laughs> Just That's going to be the title of this episode. Almost. <laughs> <100%. laughs> uh, this, ep- this next article is a, f- a first person, but it's v- beautifully uh, written by Catherine Jezer Morton, who we've quoted on here before. Part of her newsletter for The Cut, it's called Say Hi to Your Ghosts for Me. And it's about the phenomenon known as being an adult orphan. Um, uh, I first heard the term adult orphan used by the author Samantha Irby, whose parents died when she was a teenager. That feels like a legitimate kind of orphanhood, where you wonder how a person made it all by themselves. My orphanhood, her parents are both dead, feels fake and embarrassing. Can a 40-year-old really call themselves an orphan? There really isn't anything in life more precedented than parents dying, is there? The very idea of adult orphanhood is stolen valor. Children are orphans. It feels a bit like grasping for something on which to hang your hat in the absence of any character that you've earned yourself. Not only do we live in a spiritual vacuum that precludes any real philosophical entanglement with mora- mortality, but when we-
1: Whoa, just that sentence.
0: <laughs> but when we do confront death, we make it into a special badge of identity, like a bumper sticker. Adult orphan on board, buying it but then again, I feel like a piece of space trash since my mother died, errant and signalless. I'm an only child in an adult's body, and having no living parents causes severe vertigo sometimes. There's no one to dutifully call when I've gotten home safe from a trip. One way she goes on to talk about the way that the, the, the go-to response we talk about death on social media is usually surprise, even though nothing is more surprising than death. Um, but she said another way grief is processed on social media is with the increasingly popular reminder that, quote, grief is not linear. I see it everywhere, resonating like a desperate plea. Please, people, stop thinking of grief as linear. We are in constant need of this reminder because linear thinking plays a big part in how we conceive of our lives our careers progress our children grow we chart our goals and accomplishments at leisure and work we tick items off our bucket lists we compare our progress to where we were this time last year none of this takes death's inevitability into account and when death comes we are unprepared for its elliptical influence on our lives The death of a parent makes you a child again, but also an elder, and you keep going back and forth between those two states, possibly until you yourself die. Grief sends us off a cliff, pumping our legs into thin air like the Road Runner. Grief is not linear, and neither is love, nor joy, nor work, but we've managed to wrestle everyday survival into a series of units and badges, so now we experience our lives that way. There is comedy at the core of grief. Losing my parents was like having the house lights come up on a play that I had thought was real life. So good. Suddenly I became aware of a whole crew of people, technicians, stage managers who'd been putting on the whole thing. I had taken it all for granted and assumed it would just keep on going all around me. There's nothing, nothing left to do, but laugh sometimes. She closes by saying families are infuriating. And one of the things about not having much of one left is that they exist only in your head, which for some people Might seem ideal. While our parents are alive, they're doing things that we have no choice but to react to. Sometimes they're making demands on us that we resent. Sometimes they're letting us down by not really knowing us. Dead parents don't do any of this, which is the upside. The downside is everything else.
1: It's also good. That last bit is like, I told you this was such a relief to me because, um, That's the thing I think about a lot as, you know, we have parents who have uh, medical issues or or aging or just uh, annoying, you know, Mm. at certain moments as every parent is. And, you know, that's just gone for me. Mm. Right. Like, I don't have to worry about Christmas and where I'm going to be. I don't have to worry about Thanksgiving, really. I mean, I'm going to be with family, but where I'm going to be because no one cares. Mm. You know, I mean, I. I, last Christmas, plans changed in a couple of different ways because of COVID. And I remember telling my husband, you know, as the firstborn daughter, everything always ran around me. And I, I was one with kids. I was the one who was married. And now nothing does. And it, w- it, was so, it was just so helpful to see that in print, Dave. I'm really grateful for her writing and grateful that you included this. I kind of I wonder I wonder what RJ's thinking because I know you've you've lost your dad. I know. Um you know, because the other thing I do want to say about that is like also there is there's weird relief there. Which I just usually just say in the guises of therapy, but there's there's deep pain. I want them back more than anything else. And also, I'm not gonna go through Alzheimer's with my mom. Mm. I'm not gonna go, you know what I mean? Like that's real, right? And so it's a really, you know, it's it's hard. It's all very hard.
0: Um, yeah. RJ, what, what are you going to say? We're here. I don't ever think about my
1: dad. Wow. Okay. That's I honest. I just
2: don't. And like yeah. this whole idea that he was somehow, yeah. I mean, I know he loved me. I, I know he was proud of me. But this idea that he's like behind the scenes, like working things together. For, like, no, mm. no, no. Yeah. no. I was yeah. on my own, you know, and he communicated yeah. that in lots of different ways. I might, I, you know, I love my mother. Um, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm also, I'm a guy. I'm just going to say I'm a man. <laughs> so so yeah, uh, sure. So, yeah, so, so yeah. maybe there's something yes. to, having to do with my barely malehood that has to do with how I feel about my, about <laughs> my parents. But I just don't know what, I don't know what to say. I, um, yeah, I didn't grieve his passing. And I, maybe I will someday and I haven't. Um, I feel like I try hard in some ways to not be the father that he was to my children in terms of how I provide for them and what I communicate to them. And I also recognize that in some ways I'm as ambitious as he was. I'm as Mm people-pleasing as he is. Um, I've Mm -hmm. ended up moving my kids almost as much as he moved me, even though I sort of swore I never Mm -hmm. would. You know, Mm -hmm. all the qualities that made it difficult for him to be my father, as a business person, he was a businessman, I've imported probably into my ministry you know sure so i wrestle with yeah. that like i i so much of me is yeah. him um but yeah i i hardly ever think about him like my mom texted me and my brothers and they were divorced and she my mom's amazing on his birthday just been like yeah, just been like your, you know your your father would have been x number of years today and i was like that would have never in a million years occurred to me if you did not text me that you know mm-hmm. so i'm just going to be honest like yeah. and
1: no, I think that's so I mean, you know, I um My eldest son really my oldest son wept also. at his
2: funeral. You know, and I think in some ways yeah. he maybe had a closer like they experienced more of his love and favor than I did, which is healing. Yeah. You know? Um I'm grateful yes. for that. Yeah. Uh yeah.
1: And we we're given the gift in being people who lost parents at this age we are given the gift of of actually understanding their legacy for our children and so you know when there are hard things that come up for me about my childhood because i had a complicated childhood like everyone has a complicated childhood um i really hesitate to overshare mm-hmm. any of those things with my children because at this point like their legacy is their legacy. And I want it to be, uh, really positive, um, and, and loving for our kids. But yeah, I mean, we're ve- like, I, as I'm sitting here, there's like ashes, a cactus, several candles, a Dia de las Muertos skeleton and flowers. Cause there's an ofrenda in my house mm. because it's all saints. It's, you know, thin places, all these things. Right. And it's right here where my kids eat. So for me, it's like super, super, for our family, it's super present. I mean, when we decorated for Halloween, our eight-year-old asked if we could have a graveyard in the front yard, and she wanted to write their names on tombstones. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so it's very... um, She'd be more comfortable with
0: that than like a lot of the adults, of course.
1: I know, and it's also just like how to make the rectory look weirder, you know. So,
0: <laughs> sorry. That's like, really true though. I mean <laughs>
1: everyone I be like, like this I, is gone beyond. Yeah. everyone's mad about our landscaping, Annie. We can't make it work. You know what I mean? So um I did I found a blow up with headstones and that made her really happy. Uh but yeah, I mean I I took a lot of comfort in this article, but I you know, RJ everyone, you know, not everyone would.
0: Well, what I I love about this article is this, when she says there's an insistence that grief is not linear, and it's not, and she, by the way, affirms that. She's like, it's not linear. It is not linear. It is elliptical. It is cyclical. There is no this, you know, and I guess it's part of a misunderstanding of a Kubler-Ross about the five stages being a hierarchy. She's more trying to, we've talked about this before, more trying to name different phases people find themselves into, perhaps cyclically, I don't know. But I think that she blames capitalism, you know, in this kind of uh, signally type way for being the, the reason why we think of stuff, everything in terms linearly, in terms of progress, that ladders, uh, but those, by the way, uh, predate capitalism. I think like tr- some, it, it, while, while it's perhaps exacerbated by the way we think of everything being a growth mindset, and, you know, uh, I get from here to there, X to Z, and, and, and then you have something like grief or love, which simply does not operate according to... To a a ladder uh, growth linear mindset. And she's basically saying all the, the, like, basically the most important things in life do not operate that way. And as a Christian, I think that that's 100% true. I think that the deeper truth about life is that we're not just people getting better and growing incrementally every year. That's, That's a fiction. That is totally a fiction. And that's one of the. Um, when I go around uh, talking about low anthropology, part of this is about, like, that's part of the lie that gets told in the American church is that you become a Christian, then you're becoming a better Christian every day in every way. And then when you get to be, you've been in the church for 25 years and yet you still have, you, maybe you did experience some kind of victory over something, but then it kind of boomerangs back on you. Like, people see, like, oh, well, it was all a lie. Or you could say, well, maybe these things are cyclical, and that they, we don't operate according to some mappable trajectory of growth, that things are much more the whole life of the believer is one of confession and absolution, and sanctification is much more a sense of, like, kind of getting used to your justification rather than climbing a ladder. And towards, maybe your
2: brokenness is a gift, you know, <laughs> intended for yeah, to, compassion uh, towards other people. But anyway, so I I think she's hit on. She's
0: it's a deeply true thing that death and grief reveal. But you don't have to be in the grieving process to know that that's true. That the nature of life is sort of death and resurrection, and um, and things don't always progress in a manageable, gameable, money ballable way, (laughs) you know, but I need to get from here to there. And I need, I'm a person in grief who needs to be a person who's not in grief anymore. And like, you know, I think grief given as she keeps saying, like, there's nothing more precedented and less surprising than the fact that your parents will die. Um, if that's true, then that's the normal state of things. And the aberrant, the non-abnormal way of things is this idea that we all live happily ever after and no one ever dies. Like, that's the fiction that we sort of are punctured and brought into a, a, a you know, something approaching wisdom or depth or maybe just this, the actual reality. So I, pre- I appreciate that about as someone who's not in active grief and RJ, you know, when my dad dies, I'm going to be, I know, of course you will. And, I, and, so is RJ, and you're, you're going to hear all about it. So and Sarah, you too. So just get ready. It's a long way off.
1: <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I also, it's important that we acknowledge, uh, cause we did uh, we acknowledge when Luke bird died, Chad bird's son and his Uh, Chad's father died, um, in the past few days of a massive heart attack. And, (sighs) you know, Chad's a part of our community and, um, and for us at Mockingbird, that's more than just like, you know, a brand, like we really love and care about each other and pray for each other. And, um, and we have a firm understanding that comes from this theology that has been, you know, salvific for me that suffering is the only way that's just how it happens like you suffer and that's the only way sanctification happens and i love what you just said you just rattled it off dave but the bit about like like sanct like suffering sanctification and that's how we understand our justification Mm. right through christ
0: we say this given the the fact that i i kind of chose this not only because it came up but because this is all saints sunday that we're about to pro preach, you know, where we talk about the, where we read the necrology.
1: necrology.
0: But before we get to that, the the other side of the All Saints is not just those who've died, but their children. Uh, Jane Grizzle wrote another wonderful piece for Mockingbird called Pumpkins, Unicorns and Saints of God. And um, she talks about going to Sunday school as a kid and hearing a lot about guarding your heart from sin, and that that um, she was very sensitive and said that her her mind was hyper vigilant and latched on to um, the 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 those sorts of warnings or brimstone, uh, th- basically the law, um, much more than she did the gospel. But she 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 says this. She says the lessons of guarding ourselves against sin meant my mind was filled with anxiety about how evil I was, with little consolation of grace. What did stay with me, though, when I got older from, 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 from Sunday school, were the verses and songs from my early Sunday school days. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Jesus loves me. This I know. I cannot throw the basket of harm done by Sunday school. Sorry. I cannot throw out the basket of harm done by Sunday school, lest I also throw out that flannel baby. All the good gospel <laughs> truths I learned there too. Then she shifts to saying, As a parent, I am more cautious than my peers when it comes to church and Sunday school. I certainly stay away from any who claim to convert my children and definitely avoid any who teach them about the end times. While I am grateful for the good messages I heard, I am even wary of churches that try to teach responsibility, patience, or justice. I remember the weight of those lessons, and I am hesitant to sign my children up for a similar dissonant theology. Then she talks about, you know, what it's like to be in children's ministry, because she's involved in this through Storymakers. She says, the the statistics around pastor burnout are dismal. Children's pastors are not immune to the fatigue. Barna just released a study that 56% of children's ministry leaders agree that children's ministry is often forgotten by their church. Yet if we truly welcome the newly baptized into the church, as my church congregation promised last week to do for a baby, then we have to take their attendance and attention as seriously as we do adults. Not because it will ensure they continue in their faith or because this is the age when their values are formed, but because they are fully integrated members of the body of Christ and as such need to hear the gospel just as much as we adults do. Children first experience the feeling of shame before or around the age of two. Guilt is more complex because it has to do with empathy and understanding others, but most children experience the feeling of guilt before or around age six. The gospel, the good news of God's mercy and love for his children, speaks to emotions and experiences our kids are already having. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Not teach the children to obey me and then they can come, or give them lessons about the right moral way to live and then they can come. No, Jesus welcomed children as readily or maybe more readily than he welcomed adults. As a mother, I can think of nothing better to teach my children. The gospel delivers a refreshing word to parents and children's ministries. You cannot control or program your children. Moralization of the message may work for a while until it doesn't. What will remain is the truth of the gospel, the words of comfort, the songs of love, and the promises of God's mercy and grace. What do you think about that? I I think it's it's beautiful. It's very interesting to me that um, to see children as fully formed and in need of hearing that God loves them. Uh, developmentally, I, I wonder about the, I just, she, what she says is so interesting about ki- children feeling guilt by the age of six. And I'm, I'm sure there's no hard and fast rule about that, but it certainly, we think that Sunday school is for moral formation. Um, and I don't know, I, I think Jane is very, you know, very wise to say that X... It, Kids need love and assurance just like adults do. Um, I don't know.
1: Also, like school is chocked full of moral formation. (laughs) School is... Do you know what I mean? These days... There seems to be this anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, oh, no, they're getting plenty of it. Like, I saw a video the other day that was for Samson and Delilah. Mm -hmm. And it was like... The Like, the takeaways, they, like, tell the story. It's, like, this video series on YouTube. They tell the story. It's these two guys with fun voices. And there's a cartoon. And they say, so the takeaway here is Samson made friends with bad people. And you should be careful who your friends are. <laughs> and I was like... What? The F word? <laughs> like, I just, like... I mean, it was so... Um, I was watching it actually with our our sixth grader, and he leaned over to me as soon as they said that. And he's like, "I bet you don't like this," uh. <laughs> because <laughs> said that, like, uh. yeah, because he knows, like, because he hears the gospel at home. He hears the gospel. I mean, we use story makers in the t- like. He hears it right. So he knows, right, that, like, the driving point of that story is not about Samson. It's about God and God's faithfulness to Samson, even though when the thing happened to Samson's hair that wasn't supposed to happen, you know, like, that wasn't supposed to happen. God was still faithful. God still rescued. Like, that's the whole story. Um, And also, like... It pains, it literally, physically pains me to hear that stuff in children's curriculum because some kids walk in and they feel like the bad kid. Yeah. You know, it's it's, like it's very
0: interesting to me is like talking about. I get this, I've gotten this question a lot on the road about low anthropology and little kids, and like, do we need to tell kids that they oh, that right. they are needy and broken and in need of mercy? And Jane is certainly talking about a God who is full of grace and mercy, um, and yet. When these you get these lessons that are all about protecting you from sin and 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 and, Bad and you were you are all the protecting you from the evil inside you without um, the even louder voice of God loves you, and you can run to him in the middle of this. Uh, But I I also think like I always say, like I quote Anne Lamott and her words about how we're all broken, clingy, needy and scared and don't compare your insides to other people's outsides. And I always watch the adults are like, yes, that's so great. But then I say, well, if my but if my fourth grader came home and said, hey, dad, guess what I learned at school today? I'm broken, clingy, scared and needy. I'd be like, what? No, you're great. I love you. You know, there is a slight stage of life component to it. Yeah, for I sure. do, Sarah, you've always told me that like, um, your parents brought you to church cause they wanted there to, how do you say it? They you wanted,
1: th- they wanted me to have something to saw fall back, back on. on. Like, it's hard. And I
0: think mm-hmm. that you give something, kids something to fall back on when you give them yeah. not a place of fear, but a place of assurance and, and, and grace and, and mercy. And, and God is the, you know, Jesus loves me this, I know. RJ, Ar- 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 yeah. what do you tell your children's ministers? How do you deal with this? What do you, you you've you've got a there were a ton of kids when I was at your church.
2: Uh, you must be doing I something like either terribly wrong for or children, rare, or, right? <laughs> um, exist to give parents a little bit of a break to worship and think about their lives and maybe reconnect to God and each other. Like just taking, you know, we we yeah, giving the parents a little bit of. Quiet, focused, spiritual worship time is huge. And then for kids, I think it should mainly um, be fun. Be a lot, like a little bit of program and a lot of fun. The first thing I tell my children to minister to do, as soon as you get the kids out, the first thing they're doing is they're going to play at the playground. They're getting something sugary to eat, and they're going straight to the playground to run around for about 15 minutes. (laughs) And if they don't want to run around, then there's some little craft or art project they can do instead of run around. But before you do any teaching at all, it's running around... And then it's a little bit of singing for kids that like to do that. Then it's a little bit of teaching, and then it's more fun, and it's back into into church. I think that's that's mainly what it is. And, and what you're trying to do is just communicate God's love through word, but most importantly, through action. And through them feeling like they like you love them, and they are loved independent of anything that they do or don't do. Mm. I will say, though, I, I gotta <laughs> say, there's, in parenting, um, there's... You know, there's a place for guilt because kids mess up just like parents do. But there is a place for repentance, in humanity. You know, like, like I think, uh, yeah. And you're his
0: parent. You're not. You're not God. You no, know, I'm, you're not, not, you're not, I'm not Jesus. God. I'm not God. That's right. And there's a place that you know. If you're gonna be,
2: I, I, we say to him, "Was like, hey, dude, we love you, but we want you to have friends and to like for people. And, and if you, you're gonna have a t- people are not." going to be around you if you are acting like that and if you hit things every time you get angry and if you you, you know we're we're we love you so we need to like anyway i th- i think
0: clearly Parenting versus, you know, catechesis yes. or whatever is, 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 is not always That's the same right. thing. Um I, I do think about our, our experience as youth ministers though, RJ, and I was, you know, at a time in my life where I was sort of perhaps over not overstating the grace of God, but um really You are aggressively aggressively right, you might say it's a
1: stage we go through, Pharisaical
0: about yes, anti Pharisee yes, you know yes. ism. And um I I did this? I mean, I, I feel like I had a lot of students who I who I loved, and um, I was the one who sort of let them off the hook. Never asked them to do anything. I sort of thought the, that being gracious was never even asking them to be respectful, you know, and kind of making that distinction. And then they would always joke and be like, "Dave, let's just do whatever we want." Dave, let's just do whatever we want. And I thought, "Oh, I'm failing them. I'm producing antinomians and all these things." And and uh, then as time has gone by, the funniest things happened. Uh, and almost all of them uh are still uh- Christians christians yeah, and, and, and like that's nuts uh, and, and or i mean that's statistically they nuts. did go off and had a total what you might call on the outside an antinomian phase i don't think it's really possible. mortification of
2: their flesh yeah uh,
0: they had a they had <laughs> yeah. a truly you know wilderness period they yes. just went, but then they yeah. all sort of all of a sudden they show up at a mockingbird conference i'm like what are you doing here amazing. <laughs> they're like oh amazing. I, I plugged back in three years ago and i didn't ever told you and that happened that's the experience of being 43 rather than 33 i've, I've seen that and i remember it talking to a friend of mine who was at, who was a, part of a college small group, and he said, well, if that guy starts coming back to church, well, then that whole antinomian charge that you constantly are up against, Dave, is, I just know that finally, definitively, that it's complete nonsense. And um, I said, well, it's not complete nonsense, but however, um, then that guy that they were talking about who'd lived the, you know, put it in everyone's face, how his debauchery, shall we say, um, all of a sudden he... He won't stop coming to church again. But this is like 10 years later. And I I called up this other guy and he said, well, I guess... I guess maybe there is something to this grace thing after all. And I thought to myself, you know, God. Yes. I'm, I'm, the right. I'm, awesome. <laughs> I'm the best. I'm awesome. Hashtag high be- <laughs> anthropology. No, but I, I thought about it also in terms of, and I'll just, this is like a closing thing to say, is that our, uh, Todd Brewer on the website put up an amazing article called Preaching That Connects. And he goes through what he calls secularized Christianity, mm-hmm. uh, using Rudolf Boltmann's categories and saying like secularized preaching or secularized Christian preaching is preaching that is is all about moral piety, or that's all about justice, or that is even all about catechesis and trying to pass on information. And he said this, he says, "...genuine preaching does not speak about God as spectator, looking on from a distance, but on behalf of God as an ambassador. The preacher bears the word of God and declares it as God's word for you." Um, it strikes the hearer as a direct address in one's concrete situation. It must address the hearer in the life they actually live, the cares and concerns that confront them every day, the actual guilt the hearer carries with them and the good news of Jesus's life-giving grace, the real world in which one lives and from which one must be liberated. And that, I think, applies to children, um, just as much as it does adults, um,
1: Can I say one thing that's a thing that keeps hard in my brain? So I have this student who um, is actually the child of of an Anglican priest. And um, he is the loveliest. And he's a music student um, at Rice, which we have. I think it's the number one or number two music school in the country. So it's super intense. And I mean, I think it's every time I preach, um, he falls asleep every time. And I don't preach long sermons. Like, as soon as he sits down. Yeah, but you're you're, you're a lot of eyes. things. You're not boring, More Sarah. profanity. <laughs> I More know. profanity, Sarah. I <laughs> see his eyes start to roll in the back of his head. Like, he's just, like, dozing. And I've had a couple of conversations with him where I just say, like, hey, it's fine. You know? You do seem tired, though. So, like, please take a nap. Mm-hmm. And I've also asked him to sit with um, like in a row because we just have chairs. And so my main concern in the first couple of times this happened was that he was going to fall out of the chair and hit his head on the wooden floor. And so I have literally rushed sermons to go into the Nicene Creed so that he'll stand up.
0: (laughs) Sorry. That's funny. Yeah,
1: But it's so comforting to me that he feels so comfortable there. Like... What I do know about him is he loves his parents and he grew up in a church that he seemed to really love. And that, that was like, that seems to be the narrative. And so, you know, there's nothing more beautiful to me than him basically missing my sermon every week because he's so comfortable that he just goes to sleep for a little while, you know? Um that's kind of amazing, I, actually. So,
0: it's amazing. Yeah. It
1: is. I think it's like actually what grace looks like. Like maybe it's not, you know, us saying things and them understanding it and then saying saying then then them saying it back, but maybe it's like a really tired college student feeling like it's okay for him to fall asleep mm. during the sermon.
0: RJ, any final thoughts on All Saints Day? No. <laughs>
2: Come on, not, not you always really. bring the heat. Not really. <laughs> give us, give us something. A
1: g- R.J. is not sad. He doesn't grieve. And doesn't. Want to talk. <laughs> and he hates <laughs> well,
2: baseball. <laughs> I will say this: my final all saints. I have absolutely no doubt that my father is with Jesus right now, oh. and I. Oh, I'm a yeah. guy. I do look forward to seeing him again, and then maybe the two of us will be able to express our love for each other there in a way we couldn't hear mm. So there you go. That's my thought for All Saints Day. Yeah. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Well, happy All Saints, yeah. I, guess. <laughs> I guess. I guess. All
1: Saints.
0: Sarah, I hope everyone stays awake, though. N- n- nonetheless, I still.
1: <laughs> you know, I I don't got rules, yeah. so. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Praise God. All right, you guys. All right, at least bye. it's better 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 falling asleep there than watching baseball, right? Oh my okay. God. <laughs> right. Bring it full circle. All right, All right. Love you guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.emberd.com and we'd always love to hear from you at info@embird.com. Audio production for the Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester, and if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time.
1: Praise the Lord.